And welcome back to the Conservative Atheist Podcast. I'm your host, the Conservative Atheist, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Fred Later. Hey, guys. And today we have an interesting guest for you. We have Luke Ford. He's a writer. And uh, I believe, sir, you were born in Australia, but you moved to California? That is correct. I moved to California in 1977, so 45 years ago. Yeah, long time, long time. Yeah, welcome, welcome, to, welcome to the show. Thank you, and, sir. Um, I know you have had a very lengthy uh, and very inst- interesting career, and uh, that we definitely was you, you're one of the people that we were definitely interested in, in interviewing. We interviewed uh, oh, uh, Jared Taylor, if you're familiar with him, I'm sure you are. Yes, of course. And uh, we 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 would we we're very interested in interviewing you as well. Um, so, someone you said you were recently in Australia. Yeah, I was just uh, back in Australia for three months. Oh, okay. Okay. So what, what age, if you don't mind me asking, what age did you come over here? Uh, I was 11. 11. Okay. So yeah, most of your life, most of your life you've been here. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And uh, right later, I know you had a lot of questions. Would you like to start out? Yeah, I was interested in this. I think you're probably best known for being an Orthodox Jew. And I don't know if I've ever heard you uh, talk about explicitly, explicitly on this. I'm sure you have, but What's your theory on why the dissident right, which uh, I'm not quite sure if you consider yourself part of, I know you've, uh, you've interviewed some pretty dissident right figures, and uh, it seems that you view a lot of their media. Why exactly do you think they are so particularly anti-Semitic? Well, different groups have uh, different interests, and so it, it would be weird if you're strongly identifying with Group A if you did not also simultaneously have negative views about other groups. So I think it's just... It's primarily simply inherent in the nature of of uh, in-group identity, just uh, social group identity. The more strongly you identify as a homosexual, for example, the more likely you are to have negative feelings, including fear and rage against heterosexuals. The more strongly you identify as a Christian, the more likely you are to have negative feelings about non-Christians, Muslims, and Jews. So the more strongly you identify as black, the more likely you are to have negative feelings about non-blacks. The more strongly you identify as white, the more likely you are to have negative feelings about outgroups, including Jews. So I think, I think half of it is just the nature of identity, and it doesn't have anything in particular to do with Jews and uh, non-Jewish whites. What... Um... What is, are there, you know, I, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll gladly name off a couple of groups that I have a problem with. Um, I, I have a huge problem with black crime in the United States and black culture in general. Um, and I have a huge problem with Islamic culture. Um, Islamic culture because of the, you know, on Interpol's top 100 terrorist lists, all 100, they're not all the same race, but they're all the same religion, uh, Islam. And, the problem I have with with uh, black culture is the extreme violent crime and and um, I don't know, just blatant ignorance and antisocial behavior. Uh, are there any particular groups, whether it's race, religion, um, political false affiliation, nationality, and, and that you have a particular um, bone to pick with? Uh, not not that I'm aware. I that don't generally feel like a, an activist i'm i'm very rarely outraged i'm very rarely you know got a, a bone to pick with anyone my primary interest is in understanding how the world works rather than 
getting outraged about this or that. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. What? I was, Go ahead. I was going to say with uh, anti-Semitism, I think that's a, that's at least partially the case for it. But uh, the the one thing I've always wondered with the right, it, it seems to be that uh, I mean, if you particularly if you strongly identify with one group, it's it seems to be invariably you're going to have more negative uh, attitudes towards others. But it seems like with the right that uh, the dissident right in particular, it's that uh, they don't hate to. Well, they might have, uh, I guess, uh, they view other groups as disadvantageous to their cause. This is particularly the case with uh, Jews, and uh, you can even pick Kevin McDonald, where they literally seem to think that Jews really have a concerted effort to, I guess, undermine their causes. Where they don't seem to have the same kind of, uh, uh, I guess, feelings towards other groups as far as uh, them kind of, uh, I guess, uh, enacting kind of concerted effort against their kind of will. Well, if you if you look at if you look at the left though, the left is extremely anti-Semitic. They just don't couch it that way. They they come up with this nonsense of, well, I'm not anti-Jewish, I'm anti-Israel, or I'm anti-Israeli, which is just really a smokescreen for anti-Semitism, in my opinion. Well, how do you see, how do you view that, Mr. Ford? Okay, so. There, there was a lot there. Okay, so I think every single living organism has a reaction against that which is, you know, messing with it. Okay, so if it's a bee, and you you walk into their territory, they they get upset. If it's a snake, and you take them by surprise, you know they get upset. If it's a, you know, a, a mother lion, and you come between her and her cubs, they get upset. So right. it would make sense that, that Jews are, in, in many areas of life, you know, the most influential group. It would make sense that anyone who's outside that group and who wants to remake society would have concerns. And so I think this is just in, in the wiring of groups. We're not concerned about groups that are of no threat to us. So you probably don't spend a lot of time worrying about the hot and tot because the hot and tot, uh, to the best of my knowledge, don't really do much in the United States. So no, I've, I've never even heard of the hot and tot. Right. They're, as I understand it, they're very tiny, uh, you know, black people somewhere in the world, but they're not really in the, in the United States. So <clears throat> Jews are particularly influential in media, academia, the high grounds of, of culture, uh, finance, uh, politics, and so anyone who wants to remake the the current social order is very likely to have concerns about about Jews. So uh, again, I don't see this as primarily inherently being like an anti-Jewish or and I think this is just uh, group group dynamics. So for example, during the, the 1930s, the the Nazis and the Zionists worked out the Havara Agreement whereby the Nazis were happy to assist every single Jew who wanted to leave Germany with virtually all his property, right, with all his wealth. The Nazis would assist, assist them in moving to the Jewish state of, of Israel. And so, you know, how could the, the, the Nazis be, you know, so closely in, in bed with, with the Zionists? Well, they had shared interests during the 1930s prior to the outbreak of World War II. For the outbreak of World War II, this shared cooperation became impossible. Then... Even then, in 1940, the Germans, to the best of my knowledge, weren't slaughtering Jews en masse. But after the invasion of the Soviet Union, particularly when it started going bad, you then have a new situation. And that's when the Germans start slaughtering Jews en masse. So I don't think 
that uh, is just inherently written into anyone's DNA that, you know, to hate some other group. It all depends on the situation. So let me let me pose a theory to you. I've had for a long time and I haven't heard anybody say this before, but so maybe I'm wrong. But I've always thought of the it seems like throughout history, people have had a gripe with 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 the Jews. And I think I've always tried to wrap my head around it, which is difficult for me. But the conclusion I've come to is maybe it's a a um, cultural, religious version of the Oedipus complex. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Okay, it makes sense that Christians and Muslims would have problems with Jews because a certain anti-Jewish, anti-Judaic element is inherent in the establishment of Christianity and Islam because if if Judaism was getting the job done, there'd be no need for Christianity and there would be no need for Islam. Right. So you can phrase that in Oedipal terms, but every new religion never casts itself as a new religion. It always casts itself as the fulfillment or the perfection or the logical development of the existing religion. Only people in the existing religion are too corrupt and too wicked and too <laughs> right. short-sighted to see it. So this is just, uh, just inherent. Now, it's not like um, everybody's hated Jews for the last uh, 3,000 years. All right? Right. Jews have got, had good relations with non-Jews in certain circumstances and bad relations with non-Jews in other circumstances. Just like Jews, shock horror, have had positive views of non-Jews in certain circumstances and negative views of non-Jews in other circumstances. So who's the boss here? The situation is the boss. Depending on the situation, non-Jews and Jews are more or less likely to have positive or negative feelings about each other. It's not something that's just inherently written into religious DNA or into genetic DNA. It, it depends on the situation, depends what you have in common and what conflicts of interest you have. So when different groups have very pressing conflicts of interest so that uh, it basically becomes a zero-sum struggle between the two groups, then you're, you're looking at uh, capacity for genocide. But if you don't have this kind of zero-sum struggle conflict of interest, then even though you've got all sorts of negative rhetoric going on uh, between the groups, you're unlikely to have genocide because genocide takes a lot of energy. And so you really have to have some, some pressing conflict to carry one out. So one last question, and I, I think we've pretty much covered the, the whole Jewish angle, is uh, what, what led you to, if you don't mind, if it's not too personal, what led you to convert to Judaism? Oh, well, very little's too personal for me. Uh, so Okay, good. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> we are uh, we, we are we're in the same boat. So I, I was raised the, the son of a Seventh day Adventist theologian and when I was eighteen I, I left religion, became an atheist, and then I got really sick and my life kind of fell apart. And when I was really sick, I was I was looking for, I was looking for a new way to approach life because my my atheist way of approaching life wasn't really cutting it when I was so sick. And I was at UCLA at the time, and I just started listening to this Jewish talk show host named Dennis Prager on the radio. And, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, and so I I was looking. I was looking for salvation, this worldly salvation. I was looking for hope. I was looking for connection. And he had a profound influence on me. He also showed me a great deal of kindness. I used to call his radio show a lot. And I started reading some books that he'd written. 
that were, happened to be on Judaism. I mean, I would have read his books on, you know, African poetry, but they happened to be on Judaism. So I read his books and then he recommends other books on Judaism. So in short, I became very interested in, in Judaism during a particularly vulnerable period of my life where I was kind of inchoately looking for a way back to, to God or to the transcendent, but without Christianity and, and, uh, Judaism just, uh, fascinated me it gave me energy and it gave me strength and hope to survive some very dark years of health problems yeah i'm i'm uh i have cancer and uh and atheism really doesn't offer you anything no but i've got i've got ice water in my veins so i, I you know I, I just i'm not an emotional person so i don't i i, I don't my, it upsets my girlfriend but it doesn't really phase me one, one way or the other um but yeah no, I've got stage four, four cancer. So who knows? I might last another 10 years. I might last another, you know, 10 months. There's no way to know. But, you know, the, I, I totally understand when you say that you were looking for some comfort because atheism doesn't really offer anything. It just says there is nothing and that's it. There's no, there's really no, really no nothing to grasp onto as far as emotional or, you know, there's nothing to, give you uh, hope or uh, you know it, it's pretty empty but it, you know i i can't believe what i don't believe you know what i mean <laughs> i can't force myself to believe something i don't believe but uh, I, I am a huge dennis prager fan i'm glad to hear you like dennis prager because I, I am a huge huge dennis prager fan uh, i've been watching i've been listening paying attention to him all the way since he he almost had a tv show or he did for like a short period of time in the early 90s but it, uh, it didn't I last yeah, I remember that he did have he had a nationally syndicated TV show yeah. for a few months. Right. Yeah, it didn't last, unfortunately. Yeah, I was I was interested because I was looking at to I had heard you say that uh, your conversion was due to Dennis Prager, which uh, I was looking through some of the articles that uh, you had written on Dennis Prager on your website or blog, and uh, one of the ones that stood out to me is that uh, I guess you got a quote from Paul Godfrey or I think from Cato Godfrey where he essentially just called him a milk toast kind of. Uh, banal conservative he doesn't like uh i guess that's that that was his view on him and uh i always wonder because I, I most of the right wingers that i that i read that uh whenever they reference dennis prager they always reference that uh, oh well he focuses on kind of these like uh oh well america is just an idea <laughs> or that it's this great thing and he doesn't seem to i guess focus on like some of the more racial aspects that seem to really bog this down i don't know what you think about people saying stuff like that in regards to him well, I, I think the, the quote from Paul Gottfried was that uh, Dennis Prager is an intellectual vulgarian. And so, once again, you have to put people in their context. Dennis Prager is operating in the realm of the talk show host, the pundit. If he doesn't get people riled up and angry, he doesn't have a job, right? The, the, right. the, the conservative talk show host's mission is to inform people, hey, I'm on your side against all these people, all these institutions that are holding you down and ripping you off and screwing you over. And I'm fighting for you against, you know, the global elite, the the liberals, the, you know, the, the people who run our government and who don't have your best interests at heart, but I have your best interests at heart. Now, it's kind of a, a trite formula. It's a, a formula that, that, you know, aims at probably an average IQ audience of about maybe 105 uh, but he's working within a genre, all right. You, you don't have the same freedom in your in your, you know, in your presentation when you're working within a particular genre like you know right wing talk show host. So Dennis Prager is not a scholar, you know. He is not a scholar like uh, Paul Gottfried. He is a talk show host, 
And just like you shouldn't debase an offensive lineman because he's not a great ballerina dancer. (laughs) You know, so too, you don't degrade a ballerina dancer because she's not a great offensive lineman. You know, Dennis Prager is in a particular genre. He's a conservative talk show host who's whose living depends upon riling up the audience and and working through you know a very trite formula. Now within that trite formula, you know he has some good insights. He does some some good work, but it's not no it's not it's not deep scholarship. It's just like uh, Peter Zion, right? He's if you listen to his analysis, it's it's very compelling. But it's it's a cartoon, right? Because that's the genre that, that Peter Zion's working in. Like I enjoy Tucker Carlson, but again, he his whole formula depends upon riling up the audience, saying the elites are out to get you. I'm on your side, and it's a, he can only make a show you know aimed at something like a 100 to 105 IQ audience. So he's got to work sure. within that that very narrow genre. So I don't think it it is. It is rational to expect people to to do things that their, their their genre, that their way of making a living, does not allow them to do so. You can never expect anyone to understand anything if it will cost them their living. And so, well, I, I'm much more of a much more of a Dennis Prager fan than I am a than I am a uh, Tucker Carlson. I like Tucker Carlson. Don't get me wrong, but I'm much more of a Dennis Prager fan. Well, even with Dennis Prager, you could never expect anyone to give up status, prestige. Uh, money, you know, a nationally syndicated radio show to say things that are true if, you know, saying those true things costs him, you know, money, status, and prestige. So he, he's someone who works within, you know, a particularly narrow genre, and within that genre, he's done some good things. Right. I agree. I completely agree with that, actually. Um, I, as far as, as far as, uh, I wanted to pivot to the, uh, to the, um, to illegal immigration, uh, do you have any concerns or thoughts on illegal immigration? And, and then I, I had a question for you about Australia. Yeah, I have a great deal. I, I don't think there's almost anything that I'm more concerned with than crime, and illegal immigration is a crime. So crime is my number one concern uh, for the United States of America. It's the number one topic on my mind. Legal immigration is a considerable part of that. You know, it's it's absolutely ridiculous that, that a nation doesn't, protect its borders. Also, a nation state essentially sets its wage rates by the amount of immigration that it allows in. So Australia, for example, is probably the best place in the world for the average bloke because it's been far more selective with the immigrants that he takes in than the United States. In the United States, you haven't had you know, a rise in, in real wages for the the uneducated, for example, for something like 70 years. Under Trump, you had the biggest rise in in wages for the uneducated in in this country in in 100 years because this country has so much immigration. So it's not just illegal immigration that bothers me, it's legal immigration. I would essentially like an end to all immigration to this country with, with, you know, very few select, you know, exceptions, people who could bring, say, millions and millions of dollars or have, you know, extraordinary gifts and talents that, uh, that that we desperately need. Other than that, I would like a complete cessation of all immigration. Yeah, I, I completely, completely agree with that. If you, and if you go to Japan, there is no immigration. You go to Japan, and if you buy a ticket to Japan, you have to buy an exit ticket as well. You can't buy a one-way ticket to Japan. Um, I, as far as Australia goes, uh, what, what the uh, 
are you familiar with i know you've you've spent many years here but how are, and i know but i also know you travel back and forth there are you familiar with the african gang problem they're having in various cities yeah, uh, it's mainly in Melbourne. So I was recently in, in Sydney. Sydney's the fourth safest city in the world. So there's virtually no gang problem. There's virtually no crime problem in, in Sydney. But in, in Melbourne, in, in parts of Melbourne, yeah, they've got a massive, uh, I think we, we could even be more specific. I think it's Somali. Yeah, Somali. Yeah. So it, a lot of outsiders think, oh, you know, all Africans are the same. But no, you know, some some Africans tend to be much more lively than other Africans and, and some, you know, African groups commit, you know, far higher rates of, of crime than, than other Africans. And so the Somalis have, you know, vastly, you know, outpunched their, their numbers in terms of certain crimes. I think we were looking at it and I think it was uh, Sydney or the state that Sydney's in. I think it was, I think it's particularly Sudanese where. Sudanese, yeah. Like, there was an ABC article where there were 0.5% of the youth population, but they amounted for 19% of the youth prison population. So a 38 fold, uh, what they should be, at, which is pretty insane, which, uh, seems much higher than the United States rate. If we're going off, uh, they seem to commit violent crime about 10 or 11 times higher than the average rate. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's also, uh, uh, the indigenous Australians have fairly similar crime rates only they don't tend to live in, in the big cities. But uh, indigenous uh, Aboriginal Australians also have similar astronomical crime rates. But uh, the Sudanese, uh, I believe, are primarily in the state of Victoria, primarily in Melbourne. The very few of them are in New South Wales. It, it seems like that, that a lot of the indigenous people in various various areas have a much higher crime rate. Uh, the the uh, Aboriginals in Australia and the Maori in uh, New Zealand. Uh, the Maori apparently uh, have an off-the-charts crime rate compared to the regular rest of the population. Um, what, what do you have any 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 idea why you think that might be? Well, I mean, if if a if a group has higher levels of testosterone, it's going to have you know higher crime rates. Just like men have much higher crime rates than women. You know, men commit crime at you know 10 times 20 times the rate that, that women do i don't think it's any shock to say that uh, higher testosterone levels in men you know make them much more dangerous if you're walking down a street at, late at night and you look behind you and there's you know a young asian woman walking behind you you're not going to be fearful for your life but if there's a young man walking behind you you're going to be at least 10 to 20 times concerned as if it's a, a young woman. So obviously groups with higher crime rates are going to commit, you know, high, high, groups with high testosterone rates are going to commit high rates of crime. Also, uh, legal systems are designed by particular people. So I would expect, for example, an, an Anglo-Saxon-based legal system to be most conducive to Anglo-Saxons and for other groups to be perhaps you know less less respectful of an anglo-saxon uh legal system so th those would those would be a couple of the things that would pop off right right at the top of my head the problem is that 99 98 percent of criminologists are on the left so we we don't really get uh i think a balanced academic perspective yeah. on this two two quick questions two follow, quick follow-up questions uh, do you, number number one, do you think IQ, the average IQ, because it seems like there's a high correlation between IQ and uh, and violent criminality. 
Um, and the other thing is, do you think that certain cultures, we, the fact that we were at more developed and more advanced when we met them, do you think we progressed their evolution as a culture faster than they were ready for? Okay, so definitely the higher the average IQ of the group, the less likely they are to commit crime because the higher IQ types are living more in the future, that they're right. able to discern the future more clearly, and they can see the, the downsides of, of committing crime is much more obvious to someone with higher IQ. You'll also notice that higher IQ people are much more trusting because they recognize the, the tremendous damage that comes with betrayal. So you betray someone with a high IQ, you know, they will they will take their, their vengeance very carefully and effectively. But generally speaking, high IQ people are just incredibly trusting compared to midwits and lower wits because they recognize, as with crime, the, the tremendous damage to the quality of life that can be done by committing a crime or by breaking a confidence. So then what was the, the second question? I got the one about IQ. Do you think part of it is, is that we, since we were such a much much more advanced society than they were when we came into contact, did we ask? Did we, um, did we increase? Did we basically did we take somebody who was in the Stone Age or the Wood Age, and and advance them so fast without giving them time for for natural progression? Yeah, I don't think in terms of advanced or less advanced, I, I think that uh, different peoples evolved to suit their particular ecological niche. So so people in Northern Europe evolved to suit that particular ecological niche. People in uh, North, Northeast Asia evolved to meet that particular ecological niche. And so surviving those harsh, you know, Northern, Northern Hemisphere winters, uh, the that would, you know, prepare them with certain propensities that, that people would evolve to, you know, thrive in certain circumstances, while people who, say, you know, evolved closer to the equator, they would be more fit for, for, for life and they would evolve protections. So I would not expect people who evolved in different circumstances to have identical gifts. And so... Right. I, I, there are plenty of gifts that the Aboriginals have that uh, Northern Europeans do not have. There are plenty of gifts that Maoris have that uh, Northern Europeans do not have. Conversely, there are plenty of gifts that people from Northern Europe have that Maoris and Aboriginals don't have. So I think people evolve in particular locations, and that you know shapes them for thousands of years. Right. I agree. I was, I was wondering, uh, pivoting a bit, because... Uh... I guess you said before that uh, you're more so interested in, I guess, uh, human behavior in general or kind of the descriptive aspect of it, which it seems to drive very well with kind of Steve Saylor's, uh, I guess, overall persuasion. And I know you've interviewed him, I believe, early mid-2000s, but uh, his whole idea, and uh, some people don't like this about him, but this is kind of his main shtick, is that he, he basically focused on the very adverse uh, aspects of, uh, I guess, different groups, particularly crime, and particularly now trying to find... Uh, the root cause of it, which for most of it, it seems to be deaths of exuberance, where he thinks that uh, you're essentially just loosening up the standards for certain races, and that ultimately means to them, I guess, not having when when they kind of lose these stringent standards, they become much more loose, and in his mind, you see deaths of exuberance, and I was wondering, do you view him as a, a kind of model for your own kind of political beliefs, and that uh, he also says explicitly that he doesn't view himself as very ideological, but just tries to figure out human nature as he sees it? Yeah, uh, reading Steve Saylor's had had an influence on me. I, I'm 
I'm not as uh, scientific or as uh, statistically skilled as as Steve Saylor, but uh, he, he's someone that I have a I, I respect and and I appreciate the the calm. I think you know commonsensical approach that he he brings to to his his analysis. So many people on the margins, many people in distant circles, they they tend to exuberance they they tend to be emotionally flighty they tend to be frequently extreme and flamboyant and uh steve sailor is kind of the opposite of of those unwelcome qualities when it comes to analysis yeah it, it, it's yeah it's it seems like you know and, and i've argued this with many people and it sounds like you're you're pretty much saying that what i've what i'm saying is that someone who develop say in the forests of alaska for tens of thousands of years is not going to develop the exact same mental or physical uh capabilities or or uh temperaments as someone who develops in the say the swamps of florida for tens of thousands of years right wherever you develop that's going to shape you i mean right even i mean primarily through through evolution it's going to affect how you think it's going to affect uh, all sorts of things, whether you can drink milk, you know, w- whether you uh, tend to develop, you know, tight or, or loose kinship ties. I mean, all sorts of things are going to be evolved through thousands upon thousands of years of evolution where, you know, we, we evolved without much interaction with, you know, outside groups. Yeah, it, it just seems like the left really, really is holding on to this whole blank slate idea. And uh, to me, that's it's a very asinine, very asinine notion that everybody in every environment developed exactly the same qualities and capabilities. Yeah, but the reason that we have the left is because that's proven to be evolutionarily adaptive. I mean, the the reactions to stimuli that that typify the left and the right these are evolved reactions over tens of thousands of years in some circumstances they proved adaptive in other circumstances they proved maladaptive that's why we need both of them so the the right wing approach is to have your greatest fear be disorder and contagion the the left wing approach your greatest fear is inequality and ignorance and bigotry, but at various times, you know, one or the other approach will prove to be more adaptive. So I, I don't, you know, condemn the left wholesale. I, I'm sure that there are going to be a lot of issues which I'm unaware of right now because I'm on the right, but there are going to be a lot of issues where their approach is going to prove to be more adaptive. And it, it doesn't necessarily even have to be correct. It just simply needs to be a useful adaptation to a particular circumstance that allows people to promulgate their genes as opposed to say another group which may be intellectually right but their position may not be a useful adaptation to a particular circumstance which then lessens their ability to promulgate their genes so transitioning to a to a somewhat different topic what uh, what is your position your overall position on transgender Oh, it just seems insane. Yeah. yeah. But uh, on the other hand, is it is it just a logical outworking of the whole spirit of liberalism and even the Declaration of Independence that you know all men are created equal and you know they essentially have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Like if 
maybe maybe the logical endpoint of of this type of classical liberalism where you know every individual has the right to pursue his happiness uh maybe this is the the end point of that type of uh classical liberalism and and uh just makes me think that a, a healthy society needs liberalism plus uh, russ doubt that read about this a few months ago in, in the new york times it needs liberalism plus nationalism or liberalism plus religion it needs something else because liberalism in and of itself results in the the craziness of the transsexual movement yeah it's 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 to the point where it's 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 even past that now it's to the point where some people identify as um cats some people identify as dragons i mean there was a i saw a video of a girl on tiktok it was it wasn't on tiktok it was something somebody posted on twitter but it was uh, libs i think libs of tiktok posted if you're familiar with them yes and uh the girl was in her car and she was upset because the school, her school, I think she was a teenager. I'm not sure, but her, her school would not let her wear her cat collar. And <laughs> so she just started crazily meowing over and over again in the car. She said she was going to do that all day because as a cat, she was panicking without her collar. <laughs> I mean, this is the, this is the insanity that we've, 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 uh, we've devolved into. Yeah. So this is where I would disagree with you. I don't like the, explanation insanity it's just too easy i would rather try to dig for what is the rational explanation for this and the rational explanation of this is found in classical liberalism and that is you know each individual has the right to pursue happiness as they see fit as long as they're not you know directly causing harm to someone else and so to me this is the rational outworkings of the of classical liberalism which i think to be a viable you know, productive way to organize society always needs a plus, such as nationalism or religion or something else, because just individuals pursuing their own happiness uh, results in these crazy outcomes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and uh, you know, to me, I don't care, as I've said, not to be crude, but I, I don't care if you self-identify as a toaster. Yeah. But when you start demanding people shove bread up your ass and wait for the toast to fall out, that's where I draw the line. <laughs> and, and when you when you involve me in your delusions, there's there's the line I draw, and uh, you know, men dr competing in female sports, and of course dominating the hell out of the female sport, big shock, uh, is is you know that's harming other people. Oh yeah, yeah. I think there's also a question too that to, I guess to some extent you could view it as some sort of classical liberalism, and I guess being more accepting, and people should have the liberty in that respect, but. I think there's also kind of an interesting just kind of pathologizing it from, I guess, what's spurring them to do this particular stuff. And there seems to be a level that, one, it's it seems to kind of garner acceptance to where it previously didn't get it. And it seems to me that that's something that uh, comes with basically people becoming much more emotional and thinking these groups are oppressed. And particularly with the transgender stuff, projecting what we saw with gays. And they think that, oh, we treated gays so horribly and look what happened with them. And now they can kind of function. So the same thing's happening with trans <laughs> And yeah, a, so I, I think it's worth asking, like, who gains or who who has a functional need for this? And it's just part of the, the liberal left uh, way of being that it needs to be continually educating the the less informed. It always needs to have, you know, new grounds to, to bully or to educate or to harangue people. And so, like, if they were able to get, you know, 100% acceptance of transsexuals, they would just move on to something else. They need a project, just like certain type of Christian personality, right? Needs to be continually making converts for Christ. 
and a certain kind of Jewish personality needs to constantly be making, you know, converts for Torah observance, and a certain type of Islamic personality needs to be constantly making uh, conversions to Islam. Uh, so too, it's just wired into the liberal left ethos that it has to be continually educating, uh, bullying uh, people, and you know, raising raising their level of consciousness to to what the the liberal left elite sees as you know the, the proper proper way to go. So there will always be a new crusade for certain well, personalities. There's always a new crusade. It seems it seems like that a lot of a lot of people are afraid that if anybody disagrees with me, that leaves the door open to me being wrong, and I can't accept the possibility that I could be wrong, and so I have to completely, I have to make sure that everybody one hundred percent agrees with me on everything. Well, I mean that that's just wired into human nature. For example, if if my friend and I disagree about our favorite uh, football team. That introduces a space and a uh, unbalancing element to the friendship. Our friendship is weaker because we support different sports teams. If we prefer different forms of music, if we have you know different political views, all that makes the relationship weaker and more unstable. Uh, balance theory, all right? The more people are balanced together, more people agree, then usually the, the stronger the, the relationship. And so we're also, we're all wired. Every living organism is wired to try to create an environment around it, which is most suitable to its thriving. And for, for human beings, we all absolutely need a hero system, some system where we can think that we have significance that goes on beyond our lifetime. So as an atheist, you too have a hero system, which is just as much faith-based as the religious person. Your hero system may be the, the pursuit of truth, that you're willing to pursue truth, the, the, the heavens fall, you're willing to pay the ultimate price for the pursuit of truth. And by pursuing truth, you feel like you then you know, fall into some heroic, uh, transcendent uh, hero system where you do. you're part of something that goes on past you. So everyone is wired for a hero system. And what happens when we talk to other people as intensely as we are talking now is that it, it, it keeps bringing to, to our minds the very unwelcome notion that our individual hero system is very possibly fictional. Mine, yours, anyone in the, in the conversation, which is usually going to be upsetting because if my hero system is fictional, then the whole premise of my significance is destroyed, and I have to then rationally look at my life as having essentially no significance, which is unacceptable for almost you know any human being to go on with the crushing insignificance that would come from just a, a purely empirical perspective. Yeah, my, my, my life is insignificant. On, on the grander scheme of things, if my life is a completely... Um, insignificant but I, I i like the way you explain that i really do i i do consider i when when i really think about it i do consider myself like like heroic when it comes to um striving to uh, grasp and and accept the truth even if it's a truth that i don't want to be true even if it's something that really bothers me to be true i want to i want to be strong enough to accept that and i feel heroic in being able to do so and so i i, I agree with you on that that, that, right. That was a, this, that this was a podcast, great explanation. Yeah, this podcast is part of your hero's journey where, where you're doing something that transcends your individual life. You're making a you're making 
you know, content, you're making a commitment to truth that, you know, may very well outlast you and therefore provides, you know, significance to your life, which just looking at your life empirically wouldn't, wouldn't be obvious. The one thing I don't like about my fellow atheists is that they're, they're as nasty to other people's beliefs as, uh, as they used to complain about other people being nasty to them, which kind of feeds into what you just, what you just laid out. Yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's, everyone is, is like that, uh, basically, because if, if an atheist admits that their hero system is also as fictional as that of the evangelical Christian and the Orthodox Jew, then that's unbearable, because even, even the most fervent atheist needs to believe that their life has significance, and that their life is only going to have significance if they can tie it into some sort of, you know, transcendent pursuit of truth, which, you know, goes on past their lifetimes. So all, all, our, all our hero systems on an empirical perspective are fictional, but we can't live without a hero system. Do you feel like it's kind of like a, almost like a Nietzschean will to power where we're all going to have kind of our weird drives? And if you look at it, when you think that uh, something's correct or that this is the greatest thing or is in his mind kind of philosophy, what you see it is that it's basically just a tyrannical drive. And that's basically what makes it seem like it's the most important thing. But really, it's on a level, it's like the most esteemed thing, but it's also just kind of a weird power. And it's not quite clear what exactly what exactly we should make of that. Yeah, I think that's perhaps one way of phrasing it. Like, I, I prefer the Ernest Becker phrasing. I'm I'm just ripping off his book, The Denial of Death. So I, I like how he condenses it, condenses it down to our, our biggest fear is insignificance, which on an empirical basis, all our, pretty much all our lives are insignificant. And then the way we compensate for this is that we subscribe to some sort of hero system, uh, some particular communal hero system, which then gives our life, you know, all sorts of inordinate, you know, transcendence and importance, which empirically it doesn't have. Well, I guess the, I guess back to the, the liberalism, the one thing I wondered, and I've heard Eric Kaufman talk about this, and I think I agree with it, at least from what I've seen, is that he'll make the point that if you look at the activists today, they're not actually liberal, they become illiberal, and that's a, it's not the case that they're advocating for this movement, they want uh, people to do what they want to do, they want people to be shut down to disagree with it, and... I've heard other people make uh, kind of examples of it, and uh, Jim Code kind of made this point astutely where he brings up that uh, in the 90s when he was doing stuff, the left supported him, and it was kind of the right that he viewed as the archetypal like church ladies, whereas it seems to be an inversion now where the left seems to be the church ladies that uh, are intolerant and try to shut down conversation, where the right seems to be much more accepting, and there's a question of why exactly that is, and how exactly does that square with liberalism? Is it is it always kind of this conquering force that you have to accept it? And if it doesn't go your way, then you're going to have to try to jettison it. Or could it be much more of a kind of like a egalitarian, maybe more, maybe more zero sum where you can be liberal about some things, but accept some detractors? I think it's more just a, a matter of like, I don't ex like explanations where one side is good and one side is bad. I think it's more that uh, when you have power, you want to restrict speech because you have power and the left dominates all our institutions today. So why would they want to you know, provide pathways for that being overthrown? Now, the right is out of power in virtually all institutions today. So they, they support a more you know, chaotic uh, public square because the right wants to retake the institutions. So when you control the institutions, you want to restrict access to other groups, you know, kicking you out of power. Uh, so I, I think it, it comes down to that kind of power dynamic. Well, I think there's a question of uh, 
uh, Jonathan Haidt obviously makes the point that uh, concert or political beliefs probably just boil down to uh, your own kind of personality types. And uh, I've heard some people agree with it, but uh, some people take umbrage with the idea that, uh, oh, well, Donald Trump is ultimately a conservative figure because even though he's the ultimate disruptor, he's bringing back normalcy. <laughs> and some people argue that, uh, well, maybe this is just kind of unfalsifiable and maybe we're just seeing this like weird inversion where the left uh, his supports more institutions for whatever reason, whereas the right seems to disdain them, even though it was the case uh uh, even though it was the opposite uh, year, uh, like 50 years ago, but yeah, 50 like... years ago, 50 years ago, the right, you know, had dominance in, in many institutions and the right wanted to uphold our institutions, you know, uphold our, our you know, ways of doing things. Now the left controls the institutions and the left is defending the institutions and the right is wanting to destroy them or, or take them, take them over. So it all depends depends in large part on who is in power. So the, the revolutionary, you know, those who want to overthrow the existing system now are dominantly on the right. And uh, 50, 70, 100 years ago, they were dominantly on the left. Yeah, it doesn't like a kind of some version of classical liberalism is supposed to trump that with particularly free speech and I guess giving rights to people. But I guess you seem to be sympathetic to the idea that this ultimately uh, gives way to power in and of itself and that uh, just, I guess, just the liberal calculus of naturally becoming more accepting of ideas is ultimately going to make it such that uh, you're going to, these ideas are going to become what's uh, fundamental to your identity. So therefore, they can't be challenged and you're going to be incredibly hostile to anyone that tries to can't, uh, challenge them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it used to be that academics took for granted that a free market in ideas was a good thing while a free market in goods and services was a bad thing, right? That was the dominant perspective among academics until what may be 30 years ago, and now suddenly it's kind of unbelievable. Academics and you know, the liberal left elite now say, no, we don't need a free market in, in ideas. You know, We need a tightly regulated market in ideas, which is completely inc incompatible with uh, classical liberalism. But uh, I, I guess you know, the, the classical liberals are now, we generally call them conservatives. What uh, do, we went uh, to me, things swing on a pendulum, it seems like societies. And it seems like we went so far to the left. Do you see any indications? What's your opinion? Do you think do you think that things are just going to go off the rails? Or do you think of do you see any signs that the pendulum is start, starting to swing back in the other direction? Wow. Well, Circumstances and situations are continually changing, and in some circumstances and situations, the right has a more adaptive approach. So, for example, if the 2024 election is primarily fought on the issue of crime, then the right would do really well. But if the 2024 election is primarily fought on the issue of government taking care of you know underprivileged people, vulnerable populations, then the left is going to do really well. Uh, we had COVID, and uh, generally speaking, that aligned with a more you know le left wing activist approach, and and so that was probably you know conducive to to the Democrats winning the 2020 election, but now there's some rethinking of various approaches to COVID. Maybe the you know the lockdowns were overdone. Maybe you know much of the left wing activist approach to COVID was a mistake. And so, therefore, there's a swing perhaps in the favor of uh, Ron DeSantis. So let's say, let's say just as a thought experiment, evidence comes out that the lockdowns were a mistake. Then that would, that would swing 
politics in a Ron DeSantis and American terms right-wing direction. So as the circumstance changes, then the, the, the fortunes of the right and left will change. So as I stand here right now, I don't see necessarily that, you know, the right has all the wind at its back or or that the left has all the, the wind at its back. What I do know is that which is unsustainable will stop. So the the depolicing movement and the current explosion of crime that's that's resulted from that ever since the death of George Floyd, that is unsustainable. Americans, even on the left, now gonna put up with this astronomical rise in crime rates, which can be primarily taken care of by locking up people, you know, the super predators, the one percent of people who commit uh, most violent crimes. So locking them up will inevitably have some kind of swing back to that because the the current explosion level in crime I don't think is sustainable long term. Let me give you a stat that I that I often quote and and let me ask you then I'm gonna give you two stats and I want to see if you if this shocks you or 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 not doesn't shock you. So black, the black population in the United States is roughly 13% of the population. They account for 55% of the murders. That's the stat number one. Stat number two, um, roughly uh, nearly 38,000 white women are raped by black men every year. The number of black women raped by white men is less than 20. Not less than 20,000, less than 20. Meaning it's it's called a statistical zero. It's so small that it can't. It's difficult to express it in a statistic. Why do you think such there's such a disparity that goes on? Uh, because different different peoples, you know, evolved differently, and so it would be weird if uh, there were exact same life results. But where I would disagree with many of the people who cite those statistics is thinking that these these sort of statistics are just inevitable. And uh, first of all, you could you could produce you know similar statistics just uh, showing that you know overwhelmingly ninety percent plus of murders are committed by men. Uh, of course, you know, 80, 90 percent of murders are probably committed by men under 40. And so I, I don't think it's like inherent in, you know, in, in black DNA to be, you know, criminally violent. Everything is a product of a particular time and place. For example, until about 800 years ago, Jews did not have a reputation as being particularly smart. That is just a development of the last approximately 800 years. Suddenly you have all these all these, uh, you know, People noting that the Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, tend to have you know a, above average intelligence. This is not something that's inherently written into Jewish DNA, into Jewish culture, or into well, into well, Judaism. Let me, let, and let so, me give you just a little bit of pushback. So the average IQ of of a black person in the United States is eighty five. That's the lowest in the United States. The 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 average IQ of a sub-Saharan African black. Obviously, there's exceptions. But the average average IQ of sub-Saharan African black is seventy, which is borderline mental retardation, according to um, according to you know national uh, international standards. Um, Ashkenazi Jews, the average IQ is is one hundred and fifteen. That's two full uh, uh, fifteen points is a is a full standard uh, deviation. So that's two full standard deviations between the average Black American and the average Jewish American. That's that's a that's a hell of a difference. Yeah, yeah, it is. But I mean, you could also show you know other statistical evidence where 
you know, West Africans are two standard deviations above, you know, Ashkenazi Jews in, in other categories. There are not a lot of Ashkenazi Jews playing in the NBA or in the National Football League. Yeah, of Football course. F- physically, physically, black people are extremely gifted. Well, not just physically. I mean, the 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 level of, of rhetoric and and uh, you know, showmanship and and charisma that your say evangelical black pastor will exhibit. You know, not not one rabbi in a thousand could touch that. So there are yeah. all sorts of gifts where blacks, you know, have you know two deviations ahead of Ashkenazi Jews and Northern European whites, and then there are other areas where they are you know, standard deviations behind. Also, I don't think that this is just written in stone for eternity. So, it well, not for eternity, but ev- evolution, physical and mental changes take take uh, eons. It, it, they don't happen in short periods of time. Right, but we've we've only had IQ testing for about uh, 120 years, and so. Right, right now, it doesn't look like these things can be changed very quickly. But there's all sorts of, you know, research going on where parents may be able to select certain traits in their children, and you know, it wouldn't shock me if these differences were considerably reduced, say, in the next fifty or a hundred years. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think CRISPR might might uh, rectify a lot of the problems, not just mentally but physically. Well, exactly. Gonna... Yeah. I was going to say, because uh, you seem to bring up the fact that, uh, well, black people obviously seem to be much more talented at particular things, whereas uh, other groups don't. And uh, it almost seems like you're you're inferring from that that, uh, well, don't focus on differences. But uh, you, you would concede that IQ is probably, if you were trying to find like a substantive, uh, uh, I don't know, I guess a parameter for figuring out if somebody's going to succeed in life, that's the one thing you would go to, whereas uh, some other skill that... Uh, that you would try to isolate to uh, maybe would have correlations, maybe would have correlations of other things to where it'd be moot, but uh, it wouldn't seem to do be as substantive as something like IQ. Yeah. In this current, you know, technological environment, then, you know, IQ has tremendous predictive power. But if, you know, if we, I don't know if you've been watching uh, the TV show, the last of us, like if we had some, some uh, I've heard kind of, of- Okay, if we had some kind of new kind of, you know, fungus that uh, takes over people's minds, you know, destroys technological civilization, then, you know, other skills might be, you know, far more useful for survival. So, you know, these things change. But right now, yeah, the IQ has tremendous predictive power, and you can usually figure out someone's IQ by age six or seven. Well, how how sympathetic are you to the idea that... uh... I've heard people basically just try to say, just jettison kind of modern technology and say that uh, we're basically caveman with TVs and we got pretty far, but uh, primordially we're just built for caveman days. And it's not quite clear if we're living the most flourishing lives uh, in modern technology. And they'll argue that uh, therefore that, uh, or, or what maybe on some level should be the normative standard should be something much more primitive. And they'll argue that, uh, so therefore bringing up stuff that uh, has to do with modern technology and I guess any sort of like adaptness or shrewdness for it shouldn't be seen as that consequential in the grand scheme of things. And I'm wondering if that's something you'd be sympathetic with. Well, everything that is consequential, you know, depends on your hero system. So if I were a fervent Christian, I would tell you that what's most consequential is whether or not someone's in Christ. Now, I'm not a Christian, so that's not consequential to me, whether or not someone's in, in Christ. If I was a, a fervent uh, Muslim, I'd tell you that what's most consequential is whether or not someone surrendered to Allah. You know, I'm not a fervent Muslim, so that's not what I think. 
consequential. I, I do believe very strongly in evolutionary mismatch that we are the products of millions of years of evolution and some of those products make us particularly vulnerable at this point in times for example public speaking you know we evolved to live in a small tribe and so most people have an evolutionarily adaptive fear of public speaking because your chances if you said something to your to your tribe of hurting your life versus your chances of dramatically you know benefiting your life right there are far more chances of hurting your life through public speaking this is like an evolutionary you know misfit for you know life in 2023 also the you know rampant availability of you know sugar salt uh, you know all sorts of foods that people tend to overeat right that's an evolutionary mismatch because we evolved to you know eat the food that that w was you know at, at hand so yeah i think we we are you know crave magnons we're we're also apes we're we're also we also have much in common with with plants and i also have a faith statement that you know we also have have a soul but i can talk to atheists i think quite easily as you you know you hear me now i can i can leave the soul religious thing apart and you know talk about the things that we have in common with 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 plants for example uh Think about the eucalyptus. You move eucalyptus, say, from Australia to California, start planting eucalyptus, and eucalypti emit certain compounds that make it impossible for other forms of plant life to live underneath them, and they tend to outcompete native forms of vegetation for, for water. So that's incredibly disruptive, but it's also a useful analogy to certain forms of immigration. You can you can bring in people to a native area and they will outcompete the natives and you know some of the natives will have their life life quality dramatically reduced because of you know importing uh, the the walking talking human equivalent of eucalypti i guess this is where uh, speaking for myself that uh, i'm also an atheist i'm also very pro religion but uh, i well, well, well let's let's clarify <laughs> We're pro. We're pro religion. We're we're pro Judaism. We're pro Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Buddhism, um, whatever Taoism doesn't matter. We're good with everything. Yeah, ex except one, and that yeah. one is the one that you, you know. It's the religion of peace, and I and I, I truly mean that. And, and I have to say that because if I don't, they'll cut my head off. That's the <laughs> that's the one religion. That's the one religion I have a problem with. And if yeah. they if they get their act together and they become more civilized and modern, and and stop the uh, you know the barbaric behavior and the and uh, you know flying planes into buildings and chopping people's heads off and stoning people to death and all the other you know, fun stuff they do, that uh, then I'll, I'll embrace them as well. Yeah, I guess my my point there was that uh, obviously religion religion just comports very well with human nature and it's very good for getting genes into the next generation, which is probably our main evolutionary goal. But the one thing I would push back on, I guess uh, maybe somewhat you're sympathetic uh, sympathetic with with religion is that uh, I don't think it's going to be a completely rosy thing just having these values and that we should say that uh, oh well it's just what they value and it's what they view as consequential and it that's the that's the calculus of it because. I mean, there has to be some level when you look at Christianity and you say that, okay, well, it's very, it's a very open religion and it believes if you're a Christian, then you'll do fine, which Ross Daltat seems to think, which I think if you had uh, millions upon millions or of African immigrants entering into the United States, I don't think it would be as rosy of a country, even though maybe they would have the same uh, religious uh, beliefs as, among, as many of the 
as many of the inhabitants there, which a lot of people chalk up to the success of this country. And I think that proves that uh, there's much uh, there's much uh, more at stake than just that. Right. So I think a, a huge difference between me and you two is that I don't believe in essentialism. I don't believe that there's any essential quality to being Christian, Jewish, Muslim, uh, black, uh, Ashkenazi, white. The the qualities of these groups will differ depending upon their circumstance. So there isn't there isn't really you know just Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Christianity, Islam, and Judaism display themselves completely differently depending on certain times and places, depending on the situation. So for some people, Islam does make them better. For other people, Islam makes them worse. In certain for certain people, in certain times, certain contexts, Judaism makes people worse. In other contexts, it makes people better. And in many contexts, it doesn't have any effect. Uh, same with Christianity. So th there's no essential Islam, Christianity, Judaism. These things are aspects of human culture that d display themselves completely differently depending upon circumstance. So it's not like written into the DNA of the Muslim that uh, he's got, you know, one in 100,000 chance of flying a plane into a building. In certain times, in certain contexts, you know, some Muslims will be, you know, predisposed to waging war against outgroups in, in such a manner. But in other times and other contexts, they, they won't be. In some times, some contexts, you know, Christianity will be, you know, genocidal towards outgroups. And other times and contexts, Judaism will be genocidal towards outgroups. So it's not like it's inherently written into people that they're just concentration camp guards. And it's not inherently written into people that they're concentration camp inmates. In some contexts, you and me would be concentration camp guards. In other contexts, you and me would be concentration camp inmates. No group is inherently anything. It depends upon time and place. Well, let, let me let me say this. Let me give a little bit of pushback on that. I, I, I agree with you. Essentially, I agree with you that you know that that the, there are. I'll agree with you this much. There's bad things in every group. There's bad things in every group. There's good things in every group, just not in equal amounts. Because it, just like the physical differences because of evolution. There's going to be cultural differences. There's going to be differences when it comes to religion. All religions are not exactly the same. All cultures are not exactly the same. And they're not equal parts of equal, you know, equal parts of good and equal parts of bad. It's, it, there's some people that are mostly bad and somewhat good, individuals even. Some, mostly bad and somewhat good. And uh, there's some individuals that are more good and, and, and just a little bit of bad. So it's it's it, to say that all I, I maybe you're not saying that man. If I'm not, you're welcome to correct me. But there's not yeah, equal parts of good and equal parts of bad in every single group or every single individual. Uh, no, but but how how people operate depends upon context. So, for example, if you talk to me when I'm running late, I am going to be abrupt. I'm going to lack empathy for you. I'm going to give you the shortest possible answers. I'm going to probably be rude if I am running late. If I'm not running late, if I've got abundant time to talk to you, like right now, then I'm going to be expansive. But in certain contexts, I'm going to completely lack any empathy for your situation because I will have other obligations that will, you know, completely shift my moral character. So too with with groups, like if a group's fighting for its survival or if a group feels it's, you know, constantly being humiliated by uh, outgroups which are, 
you know, dominating the world around them, that that group is going to behave completely differently than if it feels secure. So what you call good, good and evil, of course, de- depends upon your, your value system. But that that's my that's my point so you say oh some people have more good than bad but in a certain context i don't know there's no one who's heroic in everything all right no of course not that's that's, but i'm just saying i don't think it's divvied out i don't think it's divvied up uh equally i I don't think that every person is equally bad and equally good i don't think that every group whether it's a religious group a racial group an ethnic group uh, a uh, nationality i don't uh, you know any culture I, I don't think that it's. I don't think all things are equal at the end of the day. I just don't. I don't think that's how evolution and reality were are set up. Right. I, yeah. I, I agree with that. I mean, that's that's obvious. But but our definitions of what's good and good and bad is based on you know subjective leap of faith. Yeah, I would say that. Uh, I think I agree with everything you say to some extent, and I just come to like a different normative conclusion that. Uh, it's definitely the case that uh, people could have uh, people could fare better in different circumstances. Well, I guess having like a same evolutionary backbone or maybe having different adaptions, which I think that's truly true. It's just that, or I'm, I'm not quite sure why you're, you seem to, you seem to chalk up our position to essentialism where I think it's pretty obvious that uh, if you're seven feet tall and you have to play in the NBA and that's the way you evolve, that you're going to do better than someone that's like five, two, that there are, there are certain characteristics that are going to manifest themselves that are going to, uh, I guess, be advantageous to your particular uh, sphere in life. And you also seem to kind of be uh, positing this kind of like subcategory of, uh, oh, well, well, you have to look at people's emotions and that can uh, very much alter it, which I think is almost just a little bit too convoluted. That uh, It's almost like too convoluted. And you're just trying to say that, uh, oh, well, you don't quite know what's going to happen in these situations because they could be dealing with different circumstances and in another one, it could be deviated a bit, which I don't know if that has that much ground in uh, what's happening in a lot of modern day society, at least in societies that I tend to uh, take umbrage with. Well, this is, uh, so you understand that if someone's running late for, uh, for an important appointment, that they are going to interact with you differently. Absolutely. But, but not everybody's going to be on the same level of rudeness or the same level of, of, you know, not everybody's going to react the same in that situation. So, are there and, some... and, and I believe that that I don't believe that just goes for individuals. I also believe that goes for cultures, and it goes for races, and it goes for all the other other, other categories we spoke about. So, th- there are some situations where the situation is more important than the personalities in in the situation. For example, if you sit in a church, there is a certain effect on people in church, even though you have a whole variety of personalities in that church but the situation of sitting there in church has more of an effect on how people behave than the qualities of their differing personalities i mean maybe like a maybe like in an aspect like church where it's probably just like you getting back to something so like a primordial thing but uh i guess my point is that uh, if you're looking at something like a business world that uh isn't quite clear that this is something that we're naturally all going to kind of adhere to to some extent uh you're going to see pretty substantive differences. And I don't quite see, you seem to chalk it up to that, uh, oh, well, there's different circumstances and that's, uh, I guess, different personality types. And it's so different that you can't quite make heads or tails out of a lot of this and uh, say what's better or what's worse, or at least that's the way I understand what you're saying. Well, any declaration of what's better or worse depends upon a subjective leap of faith. Now, I, I'm pretty sure that you and I share 
you know, that subjective leap, leap of faith, we, we wouldn't have much trouble with 90% declaring what's better or worse. I would simply right. point out that that's, you know, based on a subjective leap of faith. Well, yeah, there's, yeah, there's certain people, there's certain cultures and certain groups that think that cannibalism is okay or, right. or, 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 or uh, rape is okay or, right. you know, you know, but I can only, you know, I can only go by the standard and the, that society, that by society, and that and that globally, is accepted. Yeah, and, re, and let me just finish one, one more point, and then jump in. Also, we're in a situation right now. I am simulcasting this show, and I try to never say anything on you know in a, any public channel that I would not be comfortable with you know being broadcast on a loudspeaker as I walk down you know pretty much any street in Los Angeles. So the yeah. situation. Of this, sh of any show, of any public broadcast, I am going to, you know, carefully choose my words to maximize my own well-being. I'm not just okay. telling you what I think. I'm I conforming what I think to what I perceive as in my best interests. I, I, I completely understand, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I do understand. However, um, I. I I, I I think I do that a lot less than you do. Oh, I, I'm sure because I, to be to be frank, you know, I expect to to live longer, and I, I you know there may be more things that I don't want to give up than yeah. than you're willing to give up. So obviously, you're in a different situation than I am. Right. Because you're in a different situation than I am, you can say things that I can't say, which right. is kind of my point. The only filter that I have, there's certain words. There's one particular word I won't say because I, I don't want to lose the podcast. Other than that, I, I pretty much say anything. Yeah, and, and, uh, I don't. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that uh, I definitely think you're you're right to some or, or I think there definitely is a lot of validity to the idea that, uh, well, at the end of the day, we're just using values and uh it's kind of hard to say, parse out what's better, what value is better than one other. I guess this is where I would say that I'm maybe more pragmatic. And I think that uh, maybe in more of a Nietzschean sense where, okay, well, you're, you're going to converge on something and people seemingly are going to share this as a culture and it seems to get them pretty far. And I think that on some level, maybe if you can't get pure objective truth, you have to look at it that way. And I think that even there you could cash out that, uh, okay, well, I think we have pretty good parameters for why this works. And maybe this is why I'm particularly sympathetic with someone like Steve Saylor, where I look at some of the things he says on crimes and the reason he gives. And I think, uh, well, that's probably correct. And I think his diagnosis is, is pretty ironclad and I can't really see good retorts to it. And as far as uh, living in kind of modern society goes or modern American society. Now, where I would supplement you is that there are a lot of really brilliant people on the left and I am open to them possibly having some excellent rejoinders to to Steve Saylor that I haven't necessarily discovered yet, but I have read and listened to enough brilliant thinkers on the left that that though Steve Saylor just seems like eminent common sense to me, you know, I am open to to uh, left wing critiques. Also, I you know I'm not just in analytical mode. I tend to get upset by crime. So that's the one thing where I kind of tend to shift out of analytical mode. And this is, you know, this outrages me. And so this current, you know, unnecessary explosion in, in particularly violent crime since the development of Black Lives Matter and its institutional support by our biggest corporations, by our reigning elite in academia, 
NGOs, government, and the news media, that's where I start to get emotional. So violent crime in particular, I get emotional about. I think it's an absolute, you know, completely preventable tragedy that we've had this explosion in violent crime since Black Lives Matter in, in 2014. Well, I'm also wondering, uh, you kind of made the point that, uh, or before, that uh, maybe we should view, I guess, the right and left as different, like, evolutionary strategies, and uh, one's not always going to be right at the same time, which I, I definitely concede is probably true, even though I consider myself pretty right-wing, but uh, or at the very least on this stuff. But there's also a level where you could look at, like, San Francisco, where the liberals in San Francisco basically realized the muck that's being uh, the muck in their city. And uh, they ultimately recall their DA, which to me basically says that, uh, okay, well you can be as ideological as you want, but at the end, when the rubber hits the road, you're going to have to be somewhat pragmatic about this. And you look out and you see just violence in the street and you see people just doing crazy stuff in a city that was once nice. And you think that, okay, well, these policies are not, (laughs) are not jiving well with what we are jiving well with what we want. So, we're going to go after the one uh, seemingly enacting them or seemingly uh, that's most conducive to them. Yeah, I mean, San Francisco and California in general have have pretty big problems, but so does Texas. I mean, as I understand it, hundreds of thousands of people are out of power right now because there are problems with the way that Texas organizes its energy grid. A lot of Californians have moved to Austin, for example, and not enjoyed the experience and and moved, moved back. So... There are definitely, you know, problems with the way California does things. Obviously, I'm on the right, so I don't agree with the left-wing approach. But I have to, you know, give the left credit that, you know, California is still operating. It's got a pretty, it's had a pretty big budget surplus over the past few years. Uh, it seems to be reasonably well run, even though I don't like, you know, the the soft on crime and the uh, reparations nonsense and uh, oh, giving yeah. meaning to, you know, so many things that the left does in California, I think it's a disaster, but overall the state is not horribly run. There's horribly run in certain areas, but in other areas, it, you know, seems to be working. I just got off the plane from Australia and LAX is not necessarily a big, beautiful uh, plane terminal, but it works, you know, California works with with problems and you know there are a lot of amazing things that have developed out of california even in the last 30 years and california is just being completely dominated by by the left for at least uh, 15 years so i'm willing to be open to the idea that you know that that you know the left has you know done some good things to here yeah and i would also say that uh, i guess one of the things that uh that's uh, probably the last time, the last couple of interviews I've heard with you uh, on Ocado Godfrey. <laughs> you talked about how uh, how nonsensical it is that the right's so anti-vax, and you brought up the particularly good reasons for that. And uh, that's definitely a case where the left seems to be much better. But I'd also argue it's a case where you can actually read the data and read the science and uh, see that no, you're actually much better off to get the vaccine. <laughs> oh yeah, you're definitely much better off to get the vaccine. I, I don't understand the whole anti-vaccination crowd i really don't but then again i don't understand the whole 9-11 truther crowd and i don't understand the whole conspiracy i, I don't know i just don't get it well i think I, I do get it because my my primarily my primary interest is understanding what's going on rather than you know saying it's good or bad and i think there is the the, the right has become increasingly populist and lowbrow and so you have a considerable constituency on the right that will not assent and will not say they believe in anything they don't understand and so it kind of runs against you know basic 100 iq thinking 
to believe that you know getting an injection in your arm will you know ward off this this virus so i kind of understand this you know rejection of evolution rejection of all sorts of things which i believe are true and i believe that the populist right is wrong but i have some empathy that these are you know somewhat courageous people who are willing to stand up and say i'm not going to assent and i'm not going to say i believe in things that i don't understand well, let, let, let me let me throw in a quick question let me go back to the judaism thing just for a moment now i know you said you converted to judaism and and you gave the reasons why so am i to assume that you now believe in god and believe in the supernatural or or how is you know where where are you at on that now so i i, I didn't give you the reasons why i gave you like one or two circumstances yeah, why sure. that there were you know so many reasons why that you know, just probably not appropriate to get into, or which okay. I'm not not even conscious of. Like we right. we don't understand why we do the things we do. But yeah, except for about four years of my life between about eighteen and twenty two, I've always been a theist. So okay. yes, I, I believe in God. I believe in the, the transcendent. Okay, and so you, when you you believe when you die, you will go to heaven, and and life will continue. Yeah, your, your existence. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to make sure I was clear on that. Um, I was going to say really quickly to bookend the point about vaccines, which is, I would definitely probably agree with your description there. And I've, I've heard someone like uh, Richard Janina make the point that, uh, well, you could look at uh, during the pandemic where the right was uh, so tenaciously against uh, lockdowns and they, there probably wasn't much substance behind it. They were probably just very tribal about it and they viewed it as uh, antithetical to their way of life. And it probably panned out for the best that uh, that they did that because a lot of these states didn't lock down and they probably fared much better in a lot of aspects. But then he looks at something like the vaccine where, <laughs> okay, well, now the right's also against the vaccine and there doesn't seem to be any sort of real validity for why they're doing it. And it seems to be very pernicious. And I guess my the point there, and I think some of the descriptions could be right or the right, that they're just particularly populist and very tribal in some ways and they're not particularly ideological. But I think in a way this kind of undercuts what you're saying or what I think you're saying and that you say that uh, the reason why they're anti-vax is because they don't like what they don't understand. And I think that that's uh, that speaks very well or that's uh, that jives very well with the idea that uh, a lot of these people just aren't particularly bright. Yeah, I mean, the right has really gone down market. I mean, it's like National Review. National Review used to primarily publish academics. You know, now it primarily publishes you know pundits. And so populism is... You know, kind of a, a generally a, a low IQ thing. There's no institutions that support uh, populism, so the left has become you know dominated by the high IQ types, and you know right wing rhetoric has become quite low IQ uh, over the last uh, eight years. Yeah, I, I would say that the only thing that, uh, or maybe the saving grace for this is that uh, there seems to be some racial aspects that uh, the more the left has become kind of become insane. And we've obviously kind of uh, litigated the reasons for that, that uh, they seem to be take be so antithetical to the ways of, uh, of actually kind of quelling uh, these issues, which uh, the right at the very least uh, does not seem to be doing it, does not seem to be as antithetical to it. And maybe it's uh, doesn't have as much to do with ideology as it just, just being against the left. But I still think on a practical level, that's where kind of this populist right is uh, particularly successful. And you can even look at uh, to re, uh, another Richard Nguyen point where you look at the early 2000s and you look at like a democratizing Iraq that uh, that probably had an ideological bent to it and the people that uh, advocated for that were probably likely very intelligent but it was probably something that was incredibly uh, pernicious at the end and didn't really uh, bode that well for the country.
Right. So if if the, the vaccine is as good and effective as I believe it is, then a lot of people who don't believe in the vaccine are not going to propagate their genes, right? They're, they're just going to die out and it will be, you know, maladaptive for, for the right to be anti-vax. On the other hand, you know, plenty of people on the left don't reproduce. So it's primarily, you know, trads who reproduce and have a lot of children. So that's a maladaptive strategy by by the left. So there are a lot of maladaptive strategies, it seems to me, going on in both the, the right and, and the left. Well, to some extent, it doesn't matter. Or if you really think about it, the, the ones that uh, really bear the brunt of it are the older the older folk or ilk that uh, don't get vaccinated and that uh, are too old to probably have kids and uh, they're going to be, <laughs> they don't fare well, but uh, it's not really a matter of them getting their genes to the next generation. It's just a matter of them just staying alive. Yeah, that's, you're, you're literally right. I'm, I'm speaking more metaphorically. The type of thinking that is anti-vax is going to have, I would expect, if, if, my understanding of COVID is correct. That type of thinking that is anti-vax is going to have maladaptive effects that will limit the transmission of, of genes to another generation, not necessarily literally with COVID, but that type of, you know, anti, you know, anti-vax attitude, I would expect would be a maladaptive adaptation. Yeah. I think that's uh, just parsing it out on a, yeah, on a kind of like just very, uh, I don't know if you want to say metaphorical level, that uh, maybe not a practice, but uh, it definitely uh, it definitely uh, goes that way. Where it's definitely for the worse, and uh, even though these people are probably more likely to have kids, which is uh, probably better for them, and or at least from our uh, bare bones kind of evolution, something that you're supposed to do or something that we're supposed to accomplish. I, I just thought uh, this week of a, a sitcom idea because I have a I have a friend who is very smart, very clear thinking, but doesn't earn money. And he was complaining about all the stupid conspiracy theorists who he'd been talking to. And I just thought this would be hilarious if my high IQ, very clear thinking friend, you know, was reduced to working for a conspiracy theorist, right? He gets his check from a conspiracy theorist, like someone who believes in every conspiracy theory, such as the earth is flat. But this guy still is married with kids, you know, and is employing my, my friend who thinks he's, you know, morally, intellectually, cognitively, socially, culturally, religious, you know, in every way superior to this uh, conspiracy theorist. So it's also true that a lot of these beliefs that we, we take on have, have no real world significance, like whether or not you believe the world is flat. You know, probably is not going to have any real world significance whether or not you you believe in the COVID vaccine. You know, may very well have no real world significance. You know, whether or not you believe that uh, Jesus rose from the death, uh, dead, and you know is the the one way to salvation, or if you believe the CIA killed John F. Kennedy, people can have all these these extraneous beliefs that don't necessarily have any effect on how they lead their real lives. Yeah, you just described uh, roughly. All in the family, <laughs> <laughs> with uh, Rob Reiner and uh, oh, um, yeah, yeah, Archie Bunker, Archie Bunker, Carol O'Connor. I would probably disagree with you there. Where obviously you could look at somebody just having a couple crackpot beliefs and think that uh, well, this is human nature. Or just everyone's going to have a little bit of something. That's a. Uh, I think if you believe in conspiracies, like what you just. Uh, uh, kind of uh, laid out that uh, you're much more likely to think that, oh, well, look at this vaccine that's uh, uh, promulgated by our government. Uh, that's also something that's very bad. 
I think there is kind of a, or I think I would disagree. I think it, I would disagree with what you're saying. And I think that if you have a bunch of crazy beliefs, you're, if you have a crazy beliefs, you're also going to have a lot of, a lot of other crazy beliefs. I, I know, I know people that have some really crazy beliefs that are actually pretty successful. Yeah, I, I do as well. I'm just saying that uh, typically that doesn't seem to be the case. People like to bring up that uh, that's just not true. They'll bring up that uh, well, leftists they they're very uh, they they have like this weird hippie bent where they're going to really care about what's in their body and they're going to think a uh, vaccine's going to dilute them. Where if you actually look at the evidence for that, uh, the leftists that seem to be those most far left are the most ardently pro-vaccine. So you can't quite uh, it doesn't seem like there's actually much validity to that argument. Whereas the right that doesn't seemingly maybe wouldn't have a problem with smoking a cigarette or something or doing something that's seen as just a uh, very uh, I don't know putting chemicals and bad stuff into their body or at least some at least uh, what they would think so they don't they are uh very averse to getting the vaccine well let's just take uh, say belief in god like just on an empirical basis i don't see how it makes any difference to how americans behave like in a different time and place it may signify different levels of behavior but in america in 2023 i'm not aware of any important empirical difference in how people behave whether or not they believe in god so here is this kind of esoteric or you know this, this belief in god or no belief in god but it doesn't seem to make any difference in the practical choices people make in america today I used, I used... gentlemen i hate to say this but i i'm gonna have to wrap this up okay. um did you have anything you'd like to promote mr ford before we wrap things up no i'm good Brighter later, did you have any other question you'd like, a brief question you'd like to ask before we wrap this up? I guess I'll book in that my point or what I was going to say there is that I used to disagree with that, but uh, I'm starting to look at certain cultures and Kato got, Kato's made this point where <laughs> you could look at uh, particularly South America or particularly African Americans where they're very religious, but they don't seem to live very conservative lives. So this idea that uh, you think conservatives makes this huge difference as far as, uh, or that uh, religion makes this huge difference as far as conservative values go, it just doesn't seem to really kind of really bear fruit. Yep. That makes sense to me. All right. Um, nature calls, not to be too graphic, but uh, I must wrap this up. I do appreciate, uh, Mr. Ford, I do appreciate you joining uh, I've been looking forward to, uh, I've been chasing after you for a while now. <laughs> I finally caught yeah. you. Yeah, great and, to talk uh, to you guys. I definitely appreciate it, and I appreciate you being on, and I respect all your opinions and your beliefs, and, and I, I respect the reason why you express them in the way you do, if you know what I mean. So, Thanks. I, I, Thanks, I wish you well, and uh, we'll, hopefully we'll talk about it again sometime in the future. Sounds good. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.